book of Philippians, chapter 4. I told Dr. Pollock at the breakfast table after my, I guess, Thursday evening message, I was thinking of preaching at least a version of that message at church. That way the campers and staff that slept through the second half of the message at camp could sleep through the first half of the message tonight and hear the second half that they missed, or vice versa, I don't know. Having said that little attempt at humor, I want to say a big thank you, well, to the campers, but for several of our own that have gone up to help with staff. Uh, that's a big undertaking. There's some camps where there's staff that are full-time for the summer. I worked at one such camp when I was a college student, and the church people just show up and watch it all happen and even have things done for them. Uh, our camp, these people go and they work all day into the night. It was a.m., uh, probably most nights when the staff people were crawling into bed. I bailed out on them when I was cleaning up or they were cleaning up from, what was that, a circus on Thursday night or Friday night. I said, you know, i got to go to bed. <laughs> had to drive the next day. You know, it was important. But, uh, no, but a big thank you for all help and for your prayers. And also, before I read, uh, one announcement I failed to mention this morning, but I learned driving home from camp that Juanita uh, has contracted COVID. Uh, She is doing well. She's had a couple days of the Paxlovid treatment and seems to be uh, holding her own. Uh, So that's certainly very good to hear. But let's remember her uh, in our prayers, just her overall physical weakness, I'm sure, is an issue for her, so let's pray. Still, the Lord will undertake for her, and don't forget uh, Sister Angie with recovery from surgery, um, extra cooking for Hannah. Uh, you know those things. Uh, actually, I think if there's some that would like to help with meals uh, going forward, uh, you're supposed to get in touch with Jan if I announced that correctly. But uh, let's pray for her too, in recovery. But I want to read a brief portion this evening from Philippians four, and we're going to begin reading in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Amen. We'll end our reading there and again trust the Lord's blessing the public reading of His Word. Let's bow together. Heavenly Father, we come, even with that Gospel chorus, in our hearts, turning our eyes upon Jesus. The things of earth will grow strangely dim. Those things that the world and the devil would put before us as that bright, shiny object, so to speak. Lord, how empty... How hurtful really they are. 
And Jesus, that fountain of living waters that will never disappoint His people, either now or in eternity, will give us eyes to see Him, hearts to desire only Him, that which belongs to Him, this One to whom all things belong. As we have often quoted that one of old, be married to the heir and possess all things. Lord, what it is to be a member of the Bride of Christ. Well, help us tonight, even as such, to be helped by Your Word. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Derek gave you a brief little outline, as it were, of some of the messages this morning. But Dr. Pollock, who's been serving as camp director, and I certainly encouraged you along the way and encourage you to continue to pray for our brother. He's a busy beaver. He's our newly, well, not so new now, clerk of Presbytery, uh, the director of camp, which involves a lot of preparation along the way. And, of course, he's a a pastor, uh, too. But uh, he was challenging and actually putting some of the ministers on the spot in the middle of his message. Uh, He had been calling out not rhetorical questions, but questions he expected answers from in the camp atmosphere. And he kind of had the ministers sweating a little bit because he wanted us to suggest what was the overriding theme of Philippians. Well, you know, such things can come with different nuances of answer, but he, he bailed us out and he answered himself. But he hinted, because he preached the night before me, that we'd be getting there the following evening with the texts regarding the mind. And so I just tell you that my text this evening will be in the main, verse 8, which is probably one of the most familiar verses in this chapter and in this book. It's a book or a a verse that's, I think, one easily and rightly committed to memory. I was sharing with the campers that when I was a camper, it was a verse that was preached upon, and I think it was preached upon under the title, uh, a message, God's sieve. That you you put everything as it were through God's sieve. Well, I don't want to take the text just strictly in that vein, because in some ways that application for us was looking at the text as a simple checklist or a measuring rod to, to bring alongside any questionable activity and just see if it would fit through there and okay, then you can do it. Well, I don't think it's entirely inappropriate to look at the text in that way, but there's a context to these words. There's a context in which the Apostle challenges us and charges us with regard to the type of things we're to think upon. And Dr. Pollock, in that evening, prior to my message on the thoughts, or gospel thinking, he didn't call it that, but we call it that here, was speaking from really the surrounding verses on the theme of Christian emotion. And so many things so pertinent in our ever-changing days, so valuable and helpful with regard to our hearts and minds and the condition that belongs to them. And... I wanted to come alongside and not challenge his suggestion of the multiplied times in the book where the mind is brought to the fore. But there are other themes. And if you look at the book and study through, there's a a dual theme of joy and of peace. And I have the little two-volume set of Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons on the epistles of the Philippians. And volume one is the life of joy, and 
Volume 2 is the life of peace. But these are things that, that only belong to the people of God. They're things that do not, in the truest sense, cannot belong to the ungodly. They pursue counterfeits of joy, and they present counterfeits of peace. But they don't really know or enjoy these things at all. And I'll ask you to turn quickly back to the prophecy of Isaiah for illustration of this in striking terms. Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57, beginning in verse 19, right at the close of the chapter. The Lord says, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off, and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. The text the Apostle Paul makes great use of in the New Testament. But then verse 20, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. You ponder that. That's a recurring phrase, actually. That phrase and something close to it close out the three big sections of the last 27 chapters of Isaiah's prophecy, that, that book of hope. Peace is something even the ungodly seek. Peace is something that false teachers make use of. We see in the Scriptures, it's the false teacher, it's the false prophet that says, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And the worldlings and followers of the man of sin in the last days will be crying out peace and safety. Boy, wouldn't that be a great campaign slogan for someone in our day? Peace and safety pursued and imagined through apostasy and through the man of sin. Well, it will be that that brings swift destruction upon them. You see, joy and peace only belong to God's people. It's a truth that really we have to take by faith, although there are occasions in which we can observe it. If you look in the Proverbs... You look at the end, Solomon so warns us of so often of those that pursue paths of sin and what they seem to be at the beginning and what the reality of them is at the end. We can observe that while well, peace doesn't belong to the wicked, only the godly have peace. And there is, as we know in the Scriptures, peace with God. There is that truth of reconciliation we were strangers we were enemies we were shaking our fists in his face as sinful sometimes even that's a hypocritical religious rejection and fist shaking it's not really perceived but it's by faith in Christ that we come to peace with God our justification and then that so memorable phrase that we read in our reading today in Philippians 4, the peace of God, which passes understanding. You ponder that. And how often is that the experience of God's people when circumstances are 
anything but good. And yet there's peace. Just think of the circumstances surrounding the origins of our hymn that opens with the phrase, When peace like a river attendeth my way, and sorrows like sea billows roll. These are things I say that only belong to God's people. Joy and peace are things that, can we understand it, God desires for us to have. I did with us the campers, and I think I want to do this with us this evening. I want to take a, a, a pause here and just have us do a little bit of gospel thinking. When we are tempted to think in worldly veins of thought, we think about joy and peace and happiness and all that fun stuff that worldly people get to do. We can get this impression that God is this heavenly killjoy. That, you know, other people are having a good time, but, you know, it's better if we don't have a good time and we just do the right thing, which, of course, never brings joy or never brings peace. <clears throat> but that's what God wants us to do and to be. It's like somehow our sin is just bothering God, injuring God, and He doesn't want us to do it. Well, we have to be careful here, but as a point of our understanding and of our doctrine. Sin is an insult to God. It is an affront to God. Sin is contrary to God's will. Sin is offensive to God. But I put a very lofty theological term to the students or to the campers. I thought it was very striking because I was thinking about this little excursus uh, earlier in the week and in the morning prayer session with the counselors and staff uh, our brother Tomassian mentioned this term in the devotional for the staff. There's a doctrine we call the impassibility of God. It's not impossibility. The impassibility. It has to do with the passions, with emotion, and with the, the fact that, as Dr. Cairns was working through it with us in the seminary in my day, he talked about the fact that only God can make an impression on God. You think of that even in the work of Christ. But in applying that here, God isn't injured by sin. It's not that somehow our sinfulness or our particular sins harm God. He isn't damaged by our sinfulness. He isn't harmed by the things that we do wrong. It's not somehow protecting Him by doing the right thing. Now again, He's offended, and He will pour His wrath out against sin. But who does sin harm? Sin harms us. Sin harms other people. God is angry at the stuff that hurts us. He's not angry at something that hurts Him. Because he can't be hurt. And I think having that perspective again with regard to our God, you just see there more of his infinite grace and his love. That it's stuff that hurts us, that provokes wrath in him. And so when we come to consider joy and peace, these overriding themes in the book, 
These are things that God desires for us to have. Because they're things that belong to Him. And they belong to Him infinitely and perfectly. And so, I want to come, as we suggested, focusing mainly on the 8th verse. If you look at our text this evening, it opens, finally, brethren. And I want to pause again here. This really is an unfortunate translation. And we find the same thing in the first word of chapter 3. Finally, my brethren. But a preacher wants to talk about Paul wasn't able to quit writing Ephesians. He, he wanted to and said finally, and then he went on and on. And then he tried to quit again. He said finally, and he went on. I don't think Paul was confused. It's a word that can be translated finally if the context demands it. But more often than not, and in our context here in chapter 3 and chapter 4, it would be something more like furthermore. Or if I could suggest the thought here in our text, something akin to and so. And so when we come to this list of virtues that He calls upon us to think upon, it's flowing from something else. It's flowing from something that comes before It's coming from that phrase of the peace of God which passes understanding and the things even that precede that. These are the things that we're called upon to pursue. These are the things we're called upon to enjoy. And so, if we're going to enjoy those things, we have to think in this way. And it's almost like joy and peace are abiding conditions. So Dr. Pollock spoke on the emotional life. It's like joy and peace are that which would belong to our emotions, to our frame of mind. Those are the long-term things that we experience. But Paul says, and so, to get us to think in certain ways and in certain channels, so that the short-term thoughts are going to impact the long-term frame of mind. And rather than a proper outline, as perhaps someone from New Zealand would say, sorry, I've heard that phrase a few times lately, a proper this or a proper that. Uh, A proper outline, rather than that, I want to put to you some questions this evening with regard to what surrounds verse 8. And the first question is this, what are the kind of things that my thoughts will impact? And those are the verses that lead up to this, and so, brethren, think on these things. What are the things Paul's calling us to aim at, calling us to experience, that he's saying this type of thinking is going to help that? There are four statements that he makes, some of them in the form of commands. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Command. That's in itself a powerful observation. It's not try and experience a little happiness if circumstances warrant. It's rejoice in the Lord always. Well, that is not always an easy thing. This is where in the impromptu environment of the camp setting, Dr. Pollock asked everybody to take their Bible. 
He even instructed them about sheathing their sword and then holding their sword. I'm sure all of that is for the fairness of the sword drill. And he had us turn to Habakkuk 3, in the closing verses of the chapter, where we see this catalog of catastrophes, and yet the prophet says, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I'll joy in the God of my salvation. Well, this is what believers not only are commanded to do, but are privileged to experience. Joy that is independent of our circumstances. You know, it's breathtaking at times to see how little it takes to rob the ungodly of joy. How many people go around perpetually in a bad mood? Some little thing sets them off. I'm, I'm stunned. I remember the first time, and it's been a few years, when I heard the phrase road rage. What's that? Well, man, we know what it is now. You forget to use your turn signal, which by the way, Always remember to use your turn signal. Uh, but, I mean, there might be bullets flying. Who knows? There's little joy. Well, I don't want to tarry on all of these. I want to come more fully to the eighth verse. But I do want to pause for a little bit on the second statement that he puts before us. Let your moderation be known to all men. We use moderation in the sense of doing things moderately. But that's not, I think, the point here. The term has the idea of a a gentle forbearance. One commentator just lists these commands here, and number one is rejoice, number two is be gentle. Be gentle. Now again, consider that. We're in a world that's full of opinions and all the rest. And we as believers can have those. Certainly we need to have opinions and convictions about truth, about God's Word, about right and wrong. But you get into other areas where Scripture doesn't dictate to us what to think. It may not be wrong for us to have an opinion on such things. But how do we carry ourselves and carry those opinions? I made confession and shared with the campers it was very early in my ministry that um, I was actually doing a hospital visit with someone and there was someone attending our church there at the time, dear folks. And uh, I had been minivan shopping and I was researching and I was, of course, the world's authority on the best minivan models at the time. And uh, there was one very popular minivan that really didn't have good maintenance history and I was looking another direction. And I was pontificating on minivans and all the stupid people that drive this particular kind, only to learn a very few hours later that they happened to own one of those minivans. I mean, it was a teachable moment. I felt about that tall, and remembering it, I'm just about there now. The Lord taught me a great lesson there. You know, I don't have to convince everybody And they don't have to agree with me about some of this stuff. Um, That van was known for its interior cup holder design. Maybe they like cup holders more than transmissions. And maybe they have a warranty and they're not worried about the transmission. Maybe they bought new and not used. 
you know, there can be a lot of pieces of such puzzles and people don't have to put... Was I gentle? I mean, this man was very gracious and never brought it up. I'm sure when I left the hospital that day, there was a big smile. I hope it was a smile and not a frown. But, well, I had to learn a lesson. But extrapolate that to 101 different things. Be gentle. Let us stand for truth. When Christ's honor and Christ's name and Christ's gospel is at stake, but in other things, in our treatment for one of another, a gentleness. Well, how do you get to that point? Right thinking. Looking at the fact that there can be another perspective. I'll give you another little example. I mean, to me, it was the law of the Medes and the Persians. You hang the toilet paper, the roll comes this way. It's got to be. It must be. It's obviously the only way to do it. And I had never made a point of this, but somehow in conversation, I learned from a cat owner. And that's why I was ignorant of this, as I was not a cat owner. I've been a cat babysitter for about a month now. but, But if you put it the other way, a cat can't unroll it. It just keeps spinning and stays there. But if you hang it the proper way, in my opinion, the cat can put the whole roll in the living room. So somebody might... I digress too long. Gentleness. Weighing things appropriately. And then he says, don't be anxious. We may struggle and others may struggle more than others with worry and tendencies to worry. But we're not called to live merely by personality type. For some, it may not be as much of a temptation to worry or to be anxious. They still need grace not to do so. And for those for whom they're more tempted and struggle more in the area of fretfulness and worry, well, then they must plead for more grace to not be anxious. And here's where we have some of those powerful phrases with regard to prayer. Letting our requests be made known to God. Can you think of all those things that belong to God and don't belong to God? Anxiety doesn't belong to God. Even when all the leaders of the known world are conspiring against Him, He that sitteth in the heavens shall lie. It doesn't worry him at all. What a place, what a privileged place to be. And we're called upon to dwell there. And then he says, In the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. What a phrase. What a reality. I have had I guess privilege is the right word to be with more than one person informed by a physician that they were going to die. And to have a reaction of peace. And for the physician to marvel. Peace which passes understanding. 
You see, Doctor, you've just informed me that the vapor that I'm given is nearing a close. But there's an eternal day. I'll be absent from this body and present with the Lord. And I'll be awaiting a day in which this body will be resurrected and it'll be changed. It won't be this vile body anymore that's so impacted by the results of sin. It'll be changed, made like unto His glorious body. There's a peace that passes understanding. And there's a phrase in the midst of that precious verse that I think is fitting to consider here. It says... And God shall keep, it passes all understanding, He will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That word there, keep, is sometimes used in a military context. One used the phrase, garrisoning the heart. Well, how is it, I say, what are the things that right thoughts are going to impact? Joy? Moderation? Lack of anxiety? Peace? Those are the long-term benefits, if you will, and these are but a summary of what the short-term stuff, our thoughts, are going to touch, are going to help frame. And so, if we can go to eighth verse, the 8th verse now and read Paul's and so, if this is the way we're to think, and this is the way we're going to live, Paul says, and so brethren, with that in mind, furthermore brethren, think on these things. And he comes to our list, and I'm certainly not going to preach all of these this evening. I was somewhat selective in application to the campers, and I'll I'll be so tonight as well. But whatsoever things are true, truth in context of falsehood, I just call your remembrance to our series a couple of years ago now this summer on truth falling in the streets. We live in a world that is full of lies. We live in a world where if we can borrow one of the prophet's phrases with regard to immorality and ungodliness, neither could they blush. We're living in a world where people stand right in front of a camera and tell you a blatant lie and not a whisper of a blush. And that can be in the political realm. That can be in the moral and spiritual realm. Times have come to the point where we're almost asked to be ashamed of speaking truth. When lies are boldly presented. What are the kind of thoughts we need to dwell on? Whatsoever things are true. Secondly, he says, whatsoever things are honest. And this term has the idea of that which is honorable. It actually is a word that's used in context of worship. And so we're called upon here to think on things, because what's worship? We worship God because He's worthy. Whatsoever things are worthy. This is in contrast to that which is frivolous. Think of how much time so many in our world spend on that which is frivolous. Sometimes it is sinful things, and other times it's just 
frivolous things, but yet pursuing those causes us to commit what we call those sins of omission. If we dwelt much on that distinction, but sins of commission, that's something you do, it's a sin you commit. The sin of omission is a good thing that you omit, that you don't do and you should do. Does your phone ding you once a week and tell you how much time you spent doing your games or whatever? I don't know what all it includes, but look at every week, up 15%, down 30%. It can vary greatly, but wow, how much of that time should have been spent on things worthy? What sort of things are honorable, worthy? Whatsoever things are just, here's just the black and white purity of God's law. That which is righteous as opposed to that which is unrighteous. Whatsoever things are pure. Things that are chaste. I did pause for a good season and make some, I trust, appropriate challenge to our young people, but it's not limited to the young. We live in an unchaste world. Immorality and the sins of the flesh are paraded. Whether it's in entertainment, whether it's in advertising, whether it's in dress. How many times every day even the most sheltered, as it were, among us are hit with temptation with suggestion, with allurement into things that are unchaste. To guard our own hearts and to guard the hearts of others. And there are a myriad of ways in which this should apply to us and give us care and pause with regard to how we present ourselves and how we conduct ourselves, and of course, how we think. Whatsoever things are pure, brethren, think on these things. Whatsoever things are lovely. It's a word that's only used here in the New Testament, but commentators tell us that it's commonly used elsewhere in extra-biblical Greek. It has the idea of that which is amiable and pleasing, that which breathes and evokes love. We'll bring that into a a Bible context. I mean, love is the fulfilling of the law. Things that encourage love for our brethren. Things that draw out our hearts and what we're to pursue. That which is lovely. Whatsoever things are of good report that which is well-sounding, that which is appealing. I often think in this list, this framing by the Apostle of one of the requirements and statements with regard to office in the New Testament church, the man must be well-spoken of by those that are without. You know, the ungodly might snicker and make jokes and do whatever about a true Christian in their midst when... Their hearts aren't drawn after the things of God. But yet in a business sense, that's the guy I want to deal with. 
He's not going to be dishonest. He's not going to stab me in the back. He's going to put in an hour's work if he charges me for an hour. It's a good report. Well, here's the type of thing that, again, we're to dwell upon. But the apostle changes from his six whatsoevers, if you will, to two if any's. And I think he's doing here what he does in Romans when he's dealing with the commandments, when he's dealing with the moral law. Paul fires out several commands in Romans 16 from the second table of the law, and then he just stops and pauses and says, if there be any other commandment, which of course there are, it's briefly comprehended in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love is the fulfilling of the law. But Paul here has gone through some rapid fire, obvious points if you will, but then he just kind of changes gears and says, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, Think on these things. This is the chan- these are the channels through which your mind and your heart should be going. Don't be thinking and dwelling upon the opposite of this. Don't give yourself and your mind and your attention and your affections to things that are contrary to this list. Because of all things, you put your mind and your heart there, Guess what you lose? You lose joy. You lose gentleness. You lose peaceful mindedness. You you, you gain anxiety. You lose the peace of God. You become like the wicked that are as the troubled sea. What an image. So, what are the kind of thoughts I want to dwell on? These kind of thoughts. And the last question I put to you then as you follow the context here, where can I find some help? That's where we come to the ninth verse. Those things which you've both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Early in the week, brother pointed out that the Apostle Paul's put forth in the New Testament in many ways as the exemplary Christian. You can find numerous passages where he says, be like me. <laughs> He's not doing it in a carnal, prideful sense. He's saying, follow Christ the way I'm following Christ. Well, we don't have apostolic example in the flesh. We have it in what we find in the Scriptures. And of course, We're admonished to go in that direction. But what I said to the young people, I can say to us as mature as well. It's not that our young people are immature. That phrase didn't come out right. Older people, not young. But beyond apostolic example, what kind of person do we have as an example in our earthly lives? Who do we look to? Who are we kind of wanting to be like? I think I understand the term, but the influencers of the age. Well, let's find godly influencers. And they may not all come to us through a digital means. It may be that God's provided those for us in family, in the house of God, 
in the broader Christian world. Maybe even heroes of church history, that kind of stuff. Where can I find help? Well, Paul, did he struggle with any of the stuff that was contrary to the list in verse 8? Of course he did. But he engaged in battle. He sought, as we read elsewhere, to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, this one who gets angry at stuff that hurts us. And so let us seek good examples in life. And then another help, and I close quickly with this. I love the juxtaposition of these phrases. He speaks earlier about the peace of God passes understanding. And he closes our little section by saying, and the God of peace shall be with you. We looked, I guess, last Lord's Day at that precious phrase in the close of the Great Commission. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. The God of peace shall be with you. The ungodly, they seek to flee, to get out of God's presence. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For the godly, the the presence of God, the understanding, the conviction, the knowledge of the omnipresence of God, yes, it should be an influence that checks our hearts and our actions. We're never alone. Somebody always is there. Somebody always sees and knows. But that is in a sense to look at that immature part of the fear of God we've talked about. What about the mature side of that? There's no difficulty. There's no trial. There's no problem. There's no persecution. There's no disease. There's nothing life in this fallen world can throw at me that I have to go through alone. The God of peace will be with me. And if I'm wrestling and there are battles in the realm of my thoughts that are robbing me of joy and of gentleness and of freedom from anxiety and of peace, then I ask for the help of God to think rightly, to think on the right things. To do battle with bad thinking and bad thoughts that bring in things contrary to joy and peace. And I have the help of good example. And I have the help of the promised presence of God. So if we want to well, look at that big theme of the mind, Here I say are those short-term pieces of what we engage with our minds that impact those long-term things. Not just joy and peace in this life, but eternity. Solomon says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's the real us. So I trust the Lord will undertake... Apply these things to our hearts, to those for whom it's review. Maybe a little something different than the other night that the Spirit would take up, but for all of us, let us think 
on these things. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come and ask that You'll give grace. The lofty things we've read and been challenged by in this portion, well, they're out of the reach of the flesh. But You've promised. And in very powerful illustration, the challenge to a father who's approached by a hungry child, which of you would give them stone instead of bread? How much more? How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Spirit to those who ask? So create soul thirst for us, for Thee, Lord. Create it in us. And give us grace and help. So many battlefields of the mind that will face us even as we leave this place. So Lord, take up Your Word, we ask in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.